This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Gas prices have jumped up overnight, although they are expected to decrease uh, by the time we get to the weekend. Uh, what does this all mean? Well, let's go, go to our gas guru. Uh, Dan McTagg is with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, uh, gas analyst, gasbuddy.com to find out more. He is with us now. Hello, Dan. Your phone must be ringing off the hook today. Oh, it's been busy, but... Uh... Uh, the news is better tomorrow than it is uh, what we saw today. So tell us what ha- so tell us what happened. How did we get into this situation? Why did the price go up five cents? Well, there's one particular pipeline that uh, matters to everybody, and it matters a lot. It uh, produces or distributes about forty percent of all the gasoline needs uh, for the east coast of the United States. So here I'm talking everything from uh, New York all the way down to Florida, known as the Colonial Pipeline. They had some trouble with it a few. Uh, months ago, uh, it had a leak. They fixed the leak. Uh, unfortunately, while uh, repairing the repair, if you will, a backhoe hit part of the main gasoline line, uh, ruptured it, caused a serious explosion, which many of us may have seen on uh, Monday evening. That caused a temporary shutdown of the gasoline flow to the U.S. southeast, U.S. northeast, and caused about a 15, 16 cent a gallon spike on the markets, which translated into, you guessed it, a five-cent-a-liter increase, which we received today. Uh, So that was the bad news. The good news is that the company says it wasn't as big of a deal as uh, we first thought, and we will have this thing running by Saturday, Sunday the latest. And so gas prices, uh, in reflection to uh, the the lesson threat, have dropped and will drop tomorrow about three cents a liter. Uh, Lots of people wondering how, and we've talked about this many times as well, Dan, how come if there's an emergency that immediately we see a price increase at the pumps? However, when something drops and and prices go down, it takes it seems it takes forever to work its way through the system. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're we're hearing so much yeah. about we have our reserves and whatever. Then why does uh you know even though it is a major pipeline, if it's going to be fixed by the weekend, how does this affect prices so quickly? Uh, well, the big and look. This is not should not be taken as an apology for what happens in the industry. I've spent a, a year uh, saying it was a, years saying it was a monopoly and trying to fix the problem, but we have that problem today in which you have fewer and fewer suppliers. We have a very tight supply situation in Canada. If the United States ran short, say New York City, uh, Baltimore, take your pick, New Jersey, you could expect that within a few days they would uh, send trucks further north to buy. Uh, you know, uh, whatever gasoline we have left and be willing to pay a little bit more. What refineries do in that case is uh, not only do they fall, follow the market, which did in fact increase, the U.S. market, um, they also would take a defensive position. Now, the last time we saw that happen was in tw- 2008 when the same pipeline shut down after Hurricane Ike hit Texas. That's where all the refineries are. That's who sends a lot of the gas up uh, northeast to the U.S. Uh, in one fell swoop, we saw a 12 cent a liter increase. Was it justified? Absolutely not. But it was a defensive overreaction by refiners worried that American jobbers were going to come forward and uh, buy all of our gasoline. Now, when the price falls, you have to know that uh, a gas station that bought fuel, say for X, you know, uh, extra retail margin on a day like today, buy, bought their fuel for a buck one, if it suddenly drops dramatically, they're going to be left with 50,000 liters or 100,000 liters in their tank that they bought for dollar one. And if it drops 10 cents a liter, they're going to be forced to lose 10 cents. A lot of them can't do that. So that's why, in some instances, it goes up dramatically. Others, it uh, drops uh, a little slower. And as I said, this is notionally a general way in which you can explain that. But the reality is, uh, when something happens in the United States, it matters greatly to Canadians. We are no longer price makers. In other words, we don't produce enough gasoline 
we barely make enough to to meet our own domestic needs in places like Vancouver. We import a lot of gasoline. So, you know, what happens down in the United States with the supply disruption affects us immediately and perhaps more impactfully because we don't have a lot of refineries left. We've talked about that before. Does this basically come back to the lack of refineries? Well, it comes back to a lack of production. Yeah. Canadians want to do more with less. They don't want uh, refineries in their backyard. Between where I am and you are, we once had three refineries. Yeah. Um, federal government regulations, uh, investment climate wasn't great. So rather than uh, investing in refineries, they simply mothballed them, shut them down. And now uh, if you happen to be in Hamilton or me here in Oakville or Toronto, you now have to get your gasoline either from Montreal or from uh, down towards uh, in Nanticoke at the Esso refinery there. Those are really the only two ways in which you can get it. We talked about the pipeline problems. That's the only way in which you get gasoline to our region unless a truck actually physically drives, and many do in the Niagara region, uh, out to Nanticoke to pick up product and bring it back. That costs them an extra penny or two, but they're good for that. The reality is that uh, we just barely have enough to meet our own domestic need. Uh, prices uh, uh, going down by the weekend uh, as this pr- uh, problem corrects itself. Uh, will we? S- what about prices in the future? Are we expecting another climb in the future? The only one I can see, uh, look, if, if Colonial got this wrong and the, that, re- that pipeline is not back uh, flowing gasoline by weekend and by Sunday, you can bet that by Monday morning the traders are going to be coming in saying, uh, you basically uh, walked us down the garden path here. If you're not producing gasoline, we still have the potential for shortage. By Wednesday, I'd look for a price spike, right back to where we were, four or five more cents a litre. In the meantime, of course, we'll get a three-centiliter decrease tonight, uh, so hold off until tomorrow. Um, the reality, however, is that uh, the big, big price increase happens on January 1st when the Ontario government's cap-and-trade kicks in. Right. Uh, that is five cents a litre, six cents a litre for premium, six and a half cents a litre for diesel. And, of course, every year, thanks to the federal government, the Ottawa government, uh, if, um, if uh, five cents isn't enough for you, uh, the Ottawa has introduced a plan for the next five years to increase that by four or five cents a litre uh, every year on average uh, right till 2022. So we're looking at uh, five cents provincially, four cents federally? No, you're looking at five cents on January 1st provincially. Right. right. The federal overlay on the carbon tax was if it isn't high enough to meet our rigorous standard right. 50 tons per $50 per ton, that works out to 12.5 cents a litre. I know the media's been reporting 11, but the media tends to forget some in, in, in the more rarefied you know, corners. You have to add GHST to that 11 cents, which mm. comes out to 12.6 cents a litre. So always something to bear in mind that uh, by 2022, no matter what happens on gasoline, you'll permanently have a 12.5 cent uh, premium added to, your, uh, to the cost of uh, going to and fro. And of course, with diesel going up as high as it is, uh, which will be at that point in some 16 to 17 cents a litre, you can only imagine the cost of living is going to increase dramatically. Wow, that's making us all feel real great today, Dan. <laughs> you get what you vote for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ain't that the truth. Uh, we talked a while ago about OPEC countries and how, of course, they were continuing to flood the market and keeping the prices uh, as low as they are. They were talking about uh, cutting back on production. Where is that now? Well, they're not going to be able to do that. Uh, there's just too many players that are suffering and who can produce a lot more oil at, tre- at cheaper prices to get the same amount of revenue. There's no, you know, there's really no incentive for anybody, let alone the position or the ability to verify that everyone's going to cooperate. A lot of cheating happened in that organization, and Saudi Arabia is uh, chief among them in terms of, uh, you know, being able to overproduce as much as it wants any time it wanted. The, the game, however, is not the, this is not the 1970s or 80s anymore. 
uh, the rest of the world knows how to produce oil. Russia is a good example. I mean, they're producing uh, more oil right now than Saudi Arabia is, and they can pump a lot more if they have to. If oil stays over 50 bucks a barrel, American swing producers who produce the hydraulic uh, tight light oil will get right back in, put another three, two to three million barrels on the, online. Canada can do the same thing. We can crank up and ramp up our production another two million dollars, uh, two million barrels a day. If only we had a market to send it to, because, of course, uh, we have a lot of naysayers in this country who don't like pipelines. So uh, based on that alone, I don't see how OPEC is going to be able to come up with any deal uh, that will be you know, that will hold. Everybody wants to get more oil at a cheaper price out there, and uh, that seems to be a zero-sum game. Uh, we've talked over the years of how this game has changed because North America has become a lot more self-sufficient in, in really no time at all, it seems. Uh, if we are so self-sufficient, why are these gasoline margins so tight? Again, does this all come back to production? Can't we, uh, can't we be as aggressive as we are with, uh, with <laughs> sucking it out of the ground as we can with uh, creating the final product, maybe making, creating some jobs and selling it to other people? $140 oil back a few years ago created a lot of new ways and technologies, and so it was a very high priority. Um, there are two problems with that. One, uh, you know, comparing uh, oil to gasoline would be like comparing real estate prices to the cost of lumber. Right. You need lumber to build a house, but you don't necessarily see the same economics. Uh, lumber is relatively cheap to the cost of a home, and I don't want to sound flippant. You don't put uh, oil in your tank. You put gasoline there, and we have fewer and fewer refiners. They're very expensive to make. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, with every government uh, on the planet, uh, figuring out ways in which to prevent uh, and regulate the ability for you to have a, a refinery, much less build a new one, uh, that is really a, a horse that has bolted the barn a long time ago. If uh, Canadians, rightly or wrongly, want higher regulatory uh, uh, impositions on the refineries, then they cannot be complaining about the price of gasoline. They want fewer refineries, they want them to be cleaner, they're going to have to pay for them. Uh, obviously, uh, winter months are coming, uh, heating, that sort of thing. Uh, you talked about the January 1st increase, uh, the taxes and gasoline with cap and trade. What can we expect over this winter? Well, it depends how cold it gets. Now, your weatherman will probably have some something to say about that in a couple of weeks when uh, I heard uh, one saying, uh, hey, this next two weeks will be great. After that, we're back to real winter. Mm-hmm. Um, if that happens, of course, diesel prices are up, natural gas prices are up. Uh, I suspect you'll have uh, a winter like we had in 2014 where the prices of everything went up as a result of, you know, refineries and uh, demand. Uh, if demand is much higher, then you can expect that uh, prices will, will will reflect that. Unfortunately, it comes at an awkward time. Uh, if we have colder weather, gasoline could go up another five, seven cents a liter towards and after Christmas and add the five cents to it. Um, on a day like today, you could be paying a buck fifteen uh, a liter for gasoline in and around the Hamilton region. How much do you think energy is going to be an election issue in the next decade or so? It's, you know, like last election, last couple of elections, we weren't really talking about energy prices. We weren't talking about electricity, that sort of thing. Whereas now it seems to be grabbing everybody. How much of an election issue will this be next time around, do you think? Well, it's a massive tug of war between those who want clean, non-fossil energy and those who uh, uh, are concerned about the fact that they can't afford it. If I happen to live outside of Hamilton or Toronto... I live in a more rural area. I know that the cost of electricity is prohibitive. I also know that, uh, uh, and, and as my years in politics would uh, would determine, I certainly think it's going to be a very tough row ahead for the provincial government, having brought in its green plan, which has been, uh, frankly, from a consumer point of view, quite punitive. Um, and the results are, have yet to be told as to whether this is a shift that was necessary 
right now uh, there seems to be a lot more pain and sacrifice than there has been any positive outcomes. And so uh, I would suspect that energy will remain a major focus as you have half the world wanting to uh, go after carbon dioxide, which I always thought was the giver of life, by the way, but that's apparently is new science. And the rest of the world, the Chinas, for instance, this morning, which up until 2020 will build one coal plant every month for the next five years. So I don't see how you're going to achieve that, tax one part of the world, while the rest of the world gets a, gets a pass, notwithstanding any commitments they've made to, uh, to uh, climate change summits. The reality here is that uh, I think we're, we're reaching a tipping point where affordability is very much right front and center for Canadians, and uh, uh, governments had, uh, be, would, would be best to tread very carefully here and start backing our winners, which is our oil industry, which is our ability to get our product to market as opposed to uh, saddling not only consumers but uh, possibly uh, uh, you know, trading away one of the most important industries, wealth generators we have and that we have had and that we will have in the future if it can be left uh, to itself. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic, analyst, energy analyst, gasbuddy.com to find out more. That's gasbuddy.com to find out more. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I find this uh, very difficult to talk about. I, uh, I just feel horrible about what happened at the Abbotsford, B.C. school where uh, somebody just walks up the street, off, walks in off the street, and stabs two young girls. Uh, one of them, of course, uh, dies from her injuries. But I want to read you something that was uh, posted on the CBC website, and um, this really, really, really bothers me. Uh, and you know, I'm thinking, well, am I just an old guy here? I'm just a guy that didn't grow up with social media, so I don't understand where younger people are coming from. I don't know. I got two young kids. Uh, they're very active on this sort of thing as well. But man, I would like to think, and, and I've had this discussion with my kids, there's things you do and you don't take pictures of. And it just amazes me that when something, and you can imagine what it's like to witness something as traumatic as this, an incident like this. I mean, you know, there was one time a, a, a video that someone took of a police officer in uh, Hamilton trying to take down a suspect. And these are violent acts. They're violent, violent acts. And, and I remember in that video, the police officer explaining to the people who were taking pictures what he was doing and why he was doing it as not to create fear. But this is something completely different. And we've talked about this before, whether it's been traffic accidents or what, that people are just standing around taking pictures. And I, I, I don't know. I, I just think we've lost our way on this. Uh, the CBC says, the screams of a girl being stabbed in her own high school haunted Karen Perrin last night. The Langley, B.C. grandmother wasn't inside the Abbotsford Senior Secondary School when yesterday's fatal stabbing happened and didn't hear about it from anyone who was. Instead, she saw a video online. But before realizing what it was, she clicked on it. She says, at first I thought it was a guy helping her. Then I saw him throw the knife and realized I'm actually watching a horrific video of this poor young lady being stabbed. Uh, that video, filmed on a cell phone from inside the school, has gone viral. But the violence seen here is a virus of a different sort, say psychologists, a source of trauma not just for the victims and their families, but anybody else who watches this. Because you're witnessing a murder. 
Police at the school district, police and the school district have tried to stop the video spread. Uh, the media and others uh, telling them not to watch it or share it out of respect for the families. Uh, says the school superintendent, I ask that you immediately see circulation of the viral video that was filmed during this violent incident yesterday. Many uh, outlets, of course, are not posting the video. Uh, the video is a trigger to trauma not only for students but for the community and any person that has been involved in a traumatic incident. This is not an exaggeration but just the reality of our digital age. Um, it's, it, quote, it's still a very powerful. It's still very powerful information to see something on video, even if it isn't live. Knowing that the outcome was unfortunately the death of a teenager, says Jennifer Shapka, a UBC professor in the Department of Education and Counseling Psychology. To talk more about all of this, Jennifer is with us now. Uh, Jennifer Shapka, associate professor in the area of human development, learning culture, Department of Education and Counseling Psychology at the University of BC, and is with us now. Hello, Jennifer. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate this. Jennifer, I find this incredibly uh, disturbing. And, you know, in the piece that you're talking about here, uh, you're, you're saying that, you know, by doing this, you're spreading this trauma because anybody else that, that witnesses this is still witnessing a murder. Before we even get to that, I want to delve into... Why does somebody do this? I mean, if you're sitting there in a, in, a, in a situation like this, why is someone's first reaction to record it rather than help or get out or do anything, do anything but pick up a phone and, and record it? Why is that someone's first reaction? Honestly, I think because it's become so normative. Um, kids today, we li live in a digital world where a big part of their life is about documenting it. So, you know, there's lots of great things that can come from that. You can, you know, memories that you wouldn't have maybe captured before. Um, it's a, a way to have a, a youth voice that maybe didn't exist before through YouTube and Instagram and all that. But, of course, the downsides are, you know, Sometimes we know that kids are documenting and not living life, and of course this is an absolute horrible example of that, where you're documenting something absolutely violent that doesn't need to be <laughs> documented, nor exactly as you said, is that what you should be focusing on in that situation? Uh, and, and, and again, there's no question that if you watch this, you're going to be traumatized. You're, it's, not, it's not a movie. It's a real-life situation of a poor little girl getting stabbed to death. Mm -hmm. um, and again, as you mentioned, lots of great positive results of, of social media. I mean, it's a big part of our life. It, it, it makes life easier for us. There's lots of great benefits. But how is this normal? You said this is all the normal part of, of social. Has tech replaced... Uh, morals, our feelings, our empathy? No, I mean in terms of social engagement. Technology and digital connection and social media sites and that, that's just a normative way now that adolescents connect to each other. It's not, you know, we, we you know, I've been researching the kids and technology for a long time now and I think we used to talk about their online world and their offline world and how they navigated each and kind of considered them separately but now it really is just their social world and sometimes it's online and sometimes it's offline. But a big piece of it is making sure they're seamless. So they need to be documenting the, the, online, the offline stuff so that it can make sure to be seamless with the online. Uh, so it's, it's what, gossip with pictures? The, what what does the video represent? Yeah, like, or? I mean, again, you know, I'm standing in my school. I'm watching a kid be brutally murdered 
instead of getting out, running, yelling, I mean, opening the window and screaming to try to distract the person, instead of doing anything from the safety of behind a pane of glass and inside a classroom, you take out your phone? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around that, Jennifer, even though I realize this is their lifeline nowadays. Yeah. I mean... It's, I think it's just so normative that it's not even a thought process. I think if anyone... We know that kids, in when they're not... Um, uh, in a highly stressful or highly engaged situation can actually would think rationally and go, hmm, this might not be the appropriate time to do this. But in that moment, it's, I suspect it's actually a pretty, pretty automatic thing. Like you, if you're trying to capture moments, you're, you're quick with that, right? You've got to pull that phone out and get videoing right away. It, I suspect it probably wasn't, isn't even thought about. It's just an automatic normative response. We need to document. This is important. This is big. It needs to be documented. Why would we rather do that then flee or help? This is a good question. Uh, and, and, and one of the things we know is that um, there is a protection of the screen. So, and I, I, I don't know if we have any research on this, but we know that kids will do and say things, this is from cyberbullying research, when they're protected behind the screen, so that they wouldn't normally say face-to-face. So perhaps there's something about being behind, even though you know, you're, you're still there in, in person, you're actually behind the screen videoing it. So maybe that creates some kind of disengagement or some way to, to disassociate from the actual situation that's going on. Is it not bullying, though? When is you think not- about it, Jennifer, is it not bullying? Well, I mean, unfortunately, in this case, the victim has passed. So, so that that still doesn't change the act. No, it's the the act of sharing something online that's about somebody else that is aggressive. Absolutely, is problematic, and we know this is. You know, we look and we see these are the exact kinds of things that happened in cases of Amanda Todd and and uh, Retea Parson. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it wasn't. You know, bullying is really in uh, a perpetrator that's kind of. T- excuse me, targeting a person and coming after them repeatedly. This isn't that situation from my understanding. It was an unknown. Yeah. You know, this is a horrific, unfortunate, seemingly random event. So, But isn't the outcome the same as bullying? Isn't the damage that is being done the same as bullying? And why do we not look at this as an invasive uh, invasion of privacy Absolutely. and treat this like bullying? Like well, rather I, than look at this, well, this is just a normal part of uh, the digital age we grow up in. Why don't we look at this as being abusive? So I absolutely agree that this is this is invasive and this is this is incredibly emotionally damaging. Would so, you say it's abusive? Well, abusive from the kids who are posting it. I don't think their intent is to be abusive. They're, Does that you know, matter though? Well, this is a for for an act to be considered bullying, there does need to be intent. Right. So, so, and this is why we talk. In fact, that's really interesting because this is how why we talk about how cyberbullying is actually different than some forms of face to face bullying because often the tent, intent isn't there. So you might be just joking around, mm-hmm. thinking, you're saying something lighthearted, but actually we know now that the impact of being bullied online where there's no non-ver- there's no nonverbal communication and you can't see if someone's intending it as a joke can actually be much more um, intense and harsh for the person receiving it than in a face-to-face setting and the other thing is of course it's always there so you never get a you get you don't get to escape from it so if this video hadn't been na- made that horrific event would happen and all the people that witnessed it would be traumatized and maybe even some people who heard about it verbally but We've got this video now to re-traumatize. That will, you know, it'll stay in its original form. In it's not a memory; it's the real deal, and it will. It's in its potent, most you know, traumatic form. Will 
continue to traumatize new people and re-traumatize anyone that sees it. I completely 100% agree with that, Jennifer. And I just think that's common sense. How can you not view something that's real and not be affected by it as if you were standing there next to it in, in real life? Well, but I guess my point is, so- is, do we have to start looking at this behavior, meaning taking the pictures of other people in vulnerable situations, even when it comes to being murdered? Do we When do we start looking this, looking at this as abuse instead of normal part of tech life? I agree. I don't think this is a normal part of tech life. I think the reason it happened was because uh, it was a normal... It was normative behavior. Yeah, I can, and I, I can asked, understand. I can yeah. understand that your normal reaction is to pick it up and do it. But again, not us, but the yeah. digital insiders, the, yeah. you know, the kids that have grown up in this. But and this is so. I absolutely think it's not okay. And this is where, this is where we struggle to kind of figure out how do we get kids to kind of recognize this, to self-regulate about it, to have in these moments to go to be able to have a an assessment. Is this an appropriate time to do this, or is this I should just walk away and get to safety, as you said. So I think. I mean, part of the problem is is that, you know, any parents or teachers, you know, we're kind of like the, we're the digital immigrants. We don't really know yeah. from a kid's perspective that, you know, from their perspective, what's really going on. We don't really understand. So it's very difficult for anything. I mean, we can sit there and lecture to kids about that all day, but it won't change anything. We can't. So what do we have to do? Do we have to show, do we have to turn the tables on them? I mean, you know, do we have to say, okay, you know, there was a scenario where uh, not that long ago where there was, I think it was in the United States where they uh, told a class full of students that their their friends had just been wiped out by a drunk driver and they were using this as a drunk driving uh, to drive home why you shouldn't be drinking and driving. And they put all the kids through this thinking that two of their best, most popular students had, had been killed. And then they said, oh, no, April Fool's, it was just all a part of this. To, so do we have to create? Do we have to scare no. them straight? No, absolutely not. In fact, that's what I think is happening. I think that's for all the Internet safety talks. There's, there, I think there's people that come around to schools. In BC here we have someone that comes and, pretend, and, and befriends people on Facebook before he comes and then exposes them all. In it. And it has, in the moment, it's powerful and impactful. But the long-term impact of that, it doesn't, it doesn't actually change anything. Because for the most Probably part... Probably just desensitizes. Well, it not, no, it, I think in the moment it's like, whoa, how did that happen? Uh. But they think that is one experience. They have thousands of experiences to counter that where it feels safe, where most of the stuff's happening online is fun and engaging and nobody's getting hurt. So it's really like, it's really easy to go, well, that's not going to happen to me or that's just so out of the... Po-. So it's not, you know, it's not... Those are the exceptions to the rule, and it's really easy to kind of forget that. I actually think, so not a fear-mongering approach. I think we know that doesn't work, and we've seen that in lots of different risk behaviors. But I think that the way in is actually is to engage the kids themselves, to get them to be, the, you know, the social agents of change. So this is their... This is their domain. They're, you know, they were born into this digital world. And I think we somehow need to, the role of adults is to really somehow catalyze leadership among the kids themselves to kind of recognize that this isn't okay and how to change the culture. And I think this has to do with cyberbullying or these kinds of situations. And, you know, it's about digital citizenship and social responsibility. And part of it, parents, I think we think, oh, or teachers will we don't know about the technology, so how can we teach about this? But this stuff is, as you said, it's basic relationship, basic survival stuff. Yeah. 
we don't it, forget about the technology. Mm-hmm. We need to get kids to see past the technology to feel the, you know, the impact of their actions on somebody else at the other side of that screen. Like how that might feel for someone who has a history of. An, an assault in their history and then to see that video like to have a, someone understand the impact of that and the re-trauma re-trauma that them the benign um behavior of posting that video might have that strong you know a really deep and terrible impact on someone and i think so but i do think it has to be youth-led because they you know yeah. we nope. have Makes lots sense. of research kids don't think parents nope. or teachers know what they're talking about in this realm and yeah especially when it comes to tech exactly uh should we be treating this with the same vigor that we're treating bullying well i i, I mean digital citizenship absolutely this particular instance are you talking should we like be punitive legally uh, for the for kids who are passing this video forward i don't know if we can do that i mean yeah, that, I don't, that's, and I that cat's out of the bag isn't it well, and we shouldn't because, I mean, why would we put kids who were trying to teach positive, you know, positive um, experiences, why would we put them through a punitive legal system designed for adults? Yeah. I, mean, if I don't you, think that works in bullying. I don't think it will work here. That's not an answer at all. If you asked these students why they did it, what do you think they would say? Well, interesting, when I was talking to the CBC yesterday, some people are actually arguing that it's educational. And that, I mean, that is kind of scary to me that the thought that, I mean, I think that's the argument for some news agencies to keep it posted or on their site or whatever. Um, that's like saying that, you have to witness a murder in order yeah. to know it's wrong. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I, when, the, when Amanda Todd's video was circulated, mm-hmm. I actually did feel that that could, there was lots of ways in that that could help yep. educate kids. There was no violence in that. There was no, no murder, as no. you point out. This is a completely different thing, and there's absolutely, in my opinion, no reason that we should be exposing anybody to that, and particularly not in the name of education. Uh, is, so is the bigger issue here the fact that others will be traumatized, or is the, big, the bigger issue here the fact that it was even posted? Because it seems like if when we're chasing the trauma angle, it's, it's like trying to find the horse after it's left the barn. Yeah, I think, well, I think both are issues, absolutely. I mean, would it be great if we could move to having most kids, you know, you know, in the same way we have Pink Shirt Day, like we could have some yeah. kind of allegiance, like I refuse to post violent videos or something, and everyone honors that, and that becomes the honor code of the Internet. Wouldn't that be amazing? So I think that's an issue. But that it's done and that it's traumatizing people, absolutely. And there are kids out there, many of these kids who have, you know, a, a closer or looser connection with this child, it's probably going to be the first time they've experienced the death of a peer. Yeah. And so there is going to be very many kids who will be in need of, uh, you know, mental health counseling, I think. And I think so we absolutely need to be vigilant to make sure we're helping kids deal through, deal with this really traumatic experience. Will this become a bigger issue because of this being posted? Do you think this will be a catalyst to have that discussion with young people? I would lo- You know what? I think for the people involved... I think so. It's interesting. I've just I'm collecting this data on cyberbullying, and we ask kids about privacy. Are you worried about your privacy settings? Are you worried about cyberbullying or being stalked and things like that? And for the most part, they're not, unless they've had an experience with it. Hmm. So unfortunately, I think the biggest impact and the biggest shifts we'll see as a result of this experience will be for the kids in Abbotsford and those immediately connected to the situation. But unfortunately, our media now is rife with this kind of thing. So yeah. it's a, in some ways, it's another 
sad and terrible drop in the bucket. What can parents do? What can teachers do? Well, I think uh, talk to your kids. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, not about the technology. Sure, the technology is you know, the medium that this is happening, but, and, and... It's just the method of delivery, really. Exactly. So what this is about is basic moral and civil code and social responsibility. Yes. And that, so, and parents, I think, this is what I was trying to say earlier, they get, I think they feel like they can't have these conversations because they're not a tech expert, and it has nothing to do with the tech. No, I think this is a moral issue, not a tech issue. And then the other thing, if the tech are pieces that are coming up in the conversation, let the kid teach the parents. So yeah. be, be an open and willing learner about their world. So that's a great, we all, I always recommend that as a way to start conversations. But, but ultimately, you know, it's not about technology. It's about, you know, how to, how to be a good citizen. Is it looking for our own 15 seconds of fame? Like, not only am I posting this video of this murder, but it's on my page. So that gets more viewers and likes for me. I think we absolutely know that kids are focused on 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 popularity and going viral and publicity. But uh, it's hard for me to imagine that, that uh, a typical youth would want to become famous or popular on the backs of something like this there might i mean it might be for some, in the back of their mind but i cannot imagine i refuse to accept that this this would be at the forefront of their agenda uh will person who posted this feel any remorse for doing so will again th- will they be used as an example i suspect not because honestly i even as you said that i'm like well if they didn't somebody else would have so I bet it'll be pretty easy to pass that responsibility along as well. Again, Jennifer, I just have a, I have a hard time I accepting that. And, and, I, I don't yeah. think we should accept it. <laughs> but I think, I, you know, and I think we should push hard to, to change it. And I, I hope that that person, like I said, now having gone through this experience, should they live a life of shame and guilt for doing this? Perhaps not. But can they learn from it and not do this in the future and encourage other people to not do in the future? Absolutely. Is this any different than kids at a party filming somebody who's drunk and being abducted? I think it's the same. It's all in the same. It is, isn't it? A violent, you know, well, the only difference thing, I think if a kid at a party, um, I think I would expect people to step in more. This, you know, if someone's wielding a a knife rather, you know, I'd I, I can totally the understand. Is you don't have to dive in and stop. Well, exactly. And that's not what I'm saying here. It's not like you've got to be a hero and go and get yourself killed. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying doing anything <laughs> except filming it. Yeah. Like whether Calling it's... the police, whatever fleeing, it is. Fleeing, mourning others. Yeah. 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 Get making, making yourself safe. Yeah. And it amazes me that someone who is on the other side of a pane of, a gla- a pane of glass, and I'm assuming this was filmed from inside a classroom that was going on outside, um, that they feel safe enough that... That's happening out there. I, I, I don't have to worry about that. I'm safe behind my screen. Yeah. I mean, we do know, and I don't know how much this factors in, but we do know that there is a desensitization from seeing violence in the, in the media. So that might also be happening. You've got the screen in front of you, and yep. it might be easy to just go to the place this really isn't happening. I mean, we know that people often disassociate in in. in you know, extreme situations like that. So there might be some of that happening as well. Jennifer Shapka has been with us, Associate Professor in the area of Human Development, Learning Culture, Department of Education and Counseling uh, Psychology at the University of British Columbia. Jennifer, fascinating topic. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Take care. 
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The High Court in the UK has ruled that Brexit cannot go forward without the approval of Parliament. How does that throw a stick in the spokes of this wheel? Where does it leave the country? Could uh, Brexit be reversed? To talk more about all of this, Jeff Semple is with us, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. You can find out more about all of this tonight on Global News. Jeff is with us now. Hello, Jeff. How are you doing today? Not too bad, Scott. How about you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Jeff, when this whole thing started and, and when the vote finally, uh, the results finally became public, the talk started almost immediately about how the UK could reverse all of this and end up staying in the EU. Obviously, a new prime minister installed shortly after that. Uh, she said, you know what? There's no turning back on this. We got to move forward. Uh, European Union agreed and off we go. Now we're finding out that this could get stuck in the courts. Where does this leave Brexit? Yeah, just when the path to Brexit couldn't get any more unpredictable and confusing for a lot of people, Scott, uh, another twist today that has really thrown the British Prime Minister's plan into complete disarray. Theresa May, who of course took over for David Cameron after that Brexit vote, had said all along that Brexit means Brexit, although the details of exactly what Brexit means remain to be negotiated. But her plan was to activate what's known as Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty that that officially begins the Brexit negotiations. And she was going to do that at the end of March of this coming year, 2017. And she was said she was going to take that step without going back to British Parliament, without conferring with the other party. She said that she had the mandate that she believed she needed. As we remember, about 52% of British voters voted for Brexit, around 17.5 million people in this country. So Sir Theresa May figured that was the, all the mandate she needed to move forward with this process until this morning when the British High Court, three judges, ruled that, in fact... Theresa May had to go to Parliament. She has to put this to a vote. And that has thrown the entire process into complete disarray. Uh, Why are we just finding out about this now? Why didn't this all come out in the campaign prior to the vote and during the vote? I mean, wouldn't somebody have questioned the legalities of all this way back when? Right. And I think the the sort of the the excuse, if you like, that we're hearing is that, you know, because all of this is unprecedented, no one is really clear how this is going to work. And I think, you know, certainly Theresa May and her party didn't expect this court decision. They seem to have been caught off guard by it. We haven't heard much from them today in terms of reaction, though. They have released a short and strongly worded statement accusing the Remain campaign, the Ramoners, as they call them, of subverting democracy through this, of trying to achieve what they call a half-Brexit. Now, we should stress that most people still expect Brexit to go ahead that, it, you know, even even though most British MPs actually opposed it before the vote, the fact that the referendum went the way it did means that most MPs will likely vote in favor of Brexit when the time comes. But the fact that there will now be a parliamentary vote is raising a whole bunch of questions about exactly what that Brexit might look like. And of course, one of the big questions that people point to and one of the biggest sources of debate is whether the UK should try and remain part of the EU's single market. Of course, the world's largest trading block, a a block that Canada is about to sign up to in terms of having a new trade deal with, of course, the CETA Uh, free trade agreement that will remove around 98% of tariffs. So a lot of people want to remain part of this trading block. What they don't want is to see the continued flow of 
immigrants from Europe who are allowed to come in and work in the United Kingdom if they want to. So, you know, what kind of Brexit we're going to have has just become a much more complicated question. And at the very least, this process, which is was expected to take at least two years already, is now expected to take many months, if not years longer. Wow. Uh, if there is a vote, and well, will this be challenged uh, again in court? Will this go farther? Right. So the one the next step is that the prime minister's office has said that they plan to appeal the court decision today. So that will go to the British Supreme Court. And that decision is expected in December. And of course, you know, depending on what the Supreme Court decides will dictate what other legal challenges we could see. But I think the consensus seems to be that if that if the Supreme Court agrees with today's decision, then, you know, somehow Theresa May is going to have to get find a way to get enough of the opposition parties on side with her version of Brexit to force this thing forward in, in a way that she likes. And as I said, Jeff, uh, you're there. Yes, I am. Yeah. Uh, sorry oh, about that. No, Scott. that's we okay. Some technical challenges here. No, that's okay. Uh, so what is needed in this vote the way it stands right now from what the courts have said? Is it two thirds? What is what is needed in order to make Brexit go through? No, well, exactly. All they would need is, uh, as with any sort of House of Commons vote, they would need a majority. So whether that's, uh, you know, a victory by one vote right. or by a dozen, that's what they need. But, of course, that's, you know, going to be easier said than done for the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, who, you know, I think is, is right in saying that everybody now agrees, even MPs, most of whom, even the MPs in this country who didn't want to see a Brexit, now I think appreciate and understand that it is inevitable that they will not go back against the referendum result. So everybody agrees that Brexit's going to happen, but there is a lot of disagreement still about exactly what that Brexit should look like, and you can bet that that will be the real source of debate that Theresa May is going to somehow have to navigate now to get this process moving forward, particularly by that March deadline that she had set a little bit earlier. So how do you, uh, wh- obviously you feel that, or from what you've heard, most of the MPs or most of the politicians will vote for this, uh, 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 will to, con- to continue on with Brexit. Uh, we're now hearing with this decision on the courts that the markets have gone up. There's still lots of people that are angry ab- about Brexit. Do you think there'll be pressure on these politicians to uh, vote, to not vote in favor of it? Yeah, I think there will be. And you know what? I think the real sticking point that we're, you can expect to hear more about is whether Brexit should mean the United Kingdom leaving the EU single market that I was alluding to earlier. And I think that's what's frightening the markets. That's what has frightened the markets over the past few months, the prospect that the what, they, what they're calling a hard Brexit, uh, which would basically mean that the UK leaves the trading block, that they put up tariffs and that trade suddenly becomes you know, a lot more difficult, and the, the ramifications that that could potentially have, not only for the United Kingdom, but for the global economy, for Canada's economy, particularly as it's poised to sign on for, to its own free trade deal with the European Union. So if whether I think the big question moving forward now is whether Brexit will mean leaving the single market or not. And I think Theresa May has made it pretty clear that, that she is prepared for she wants the UK to leave the single market in large part because that is kind of a necessary step to put the brakes on EU immigration. That Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, and others have effectively said, look, if you want to stop the free flow of immigrants coming into the United Kingdom, the only way to do that is to leave the trading block. You can't have your cake and eat it too. So 
that will be the debate whether to leave whether you know what has had been defined here as a hard or a soft brexit whether to leave the trading block or whether to remain part of it so you know brexit's going to happen but those are two drastically different versions and that debate is expected to consume this country over the next few months and that is the question that will now have to be put before a parliamentary vote over and above uh what the uk decides to do how's the eu going to accept that and will people in the uk feel confident saying yeah yeah never mind what the courts say we're just going to go ahead with it before they really even know how the deal's going to pan out well, that's and that's been the argument for many of those who uh, who supported the Remain side and who want to see what they're calling a soft Brexit. That just because a majority of the population in the United Kingdom voted for a Brexit doesn't mean that they necessarily signed on to whatever Theresa May's definition of a Brexit is eventually going to be. So I think, you know, that has been the argument for putting. The a more specific version of a Brexit to war up up to a vote in the British Parliament, and I think you know the European Union has been obviously you know watching all of this, but hasn't really said too much. They basically said they're not going to begin the negotiations with the United Kingdom until the British leaders officially pull the trigger until they initiate Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, which basically starts the clock. It gives the United Kingdom a maximum of two years to negotiate the terms of the Brexit. Now, Theresa May had said that she would pull that trigger at the end of March, but again, that, I think, is the the real consequence of this court ruling today, is that that deadline of the end of March is likely to be pushed back now because they simply are going to have to allow for more time, for more debate, to come up with some kind of consensus in the British Parliament. Again, we're talking about more than 800 MPs, who are a majority of whom are now going to have a chance to sign off on this. Jeff Semmel has been with us, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. You can watch more tonight on Global. The High Court in the UK has ruled that Brexit cannot go forward without the approval of Parliament. Jeff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.